Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, this week really had a couple of interesting items that occurred. I just thought I'd share with you as uh, one of the characteristics or qualities that maybe it's missing or I don't see as much as I used to is just uh, the willingness of family and friends to help. Uh, My niece got married uh, just last week. And one of the things, and she had the wedding actually at the home farm, not where I grew up with, but we at, but we also uh, purchased a farm in the 80s. And this is where grandpa and grandma live now, uh, my parents. And so my niece asked, could I host and have an outdoor wedding? And of course they said yes. And what was interesting is the most of their event, except for the tents and the tables and the food, was all uh, done by volunteers. Her sister did the flowers. Uh, My son, Tim, did the sound system there. A friend, Alex, did the um, DJing. The wedding party set up all the hay bales and um, the archways. And so my encouragement is, you know, a lot of times we don't have help because we haven't asked. Uh, we have gotten other prideful or too insular. And what was really interesting is people helped uh, with pleasure, meaning they enjoyed helping. They were given an opportunity to help and they said yes. So my, my thoughts for you is that if you can uh, just reach out and if you have some needs is that reach out to your friend group, to people that you know, and they'd be more than willing to say yes to you. The other item that happened this week is that uh, we have a timeshare that is in Whistler, British Columbia, beautiful ski hill, but in the summer it's also mountain biking and hiking and just a gorgeous area. Uh, We love going there just about every summer. And so Brenda, my wife and I were going for dinner and we came across an individual who I had met on an airplane several years before and he, I won't give out his name, but he is a professional football coach for a professional team. And what was really interesting is that I said hello to him and his wife as they were walking by, is that he was genuine, he was open, he was friendly. Uh, It wasn't about, oh, get out of here because I'm famous. Uh, He was just really um, uh, genuine and friendly, as I said already. And I just encourage, you know, just because somebody is famous doesn't mean that they have to be a jerk. And uh, this individual was the exact opposite. His wife was kind. Uh, complimentary and we had a a great, it was short, but a great conversation just on the street in Whistler Village as we discussed. So the other one is, is let's make sure that we're always accessible, that we're always approachable as we go forward in life. Today on our podcast, we have the youngest guest that we have ever had. And you know what? Eric is going to pleasantly surprise you with his wisdom, how articulated he is, And when we think about joy at work, when we think about creating engagement or work cultures, Eric is really blazing a new path, pushing back on some of the sort of standard thinkings out there and has already written his own, uh, his, uh, his first book, you know, at age 23. He just actually had his birthday and turned 
a glowing or old 25 years of age. So I just encourage that you would uh, take the time, listen to Eric. He has some insights and also really as a young person and what's going on and what's happening at work in the in the workplace. If you are young and you want to listen to somebody that really stepped out there and courage to do some uh, different things, to be his own person, then certainly Eric will encourage you. Well, I am privileged today for our SOS show to have our youngest guest ever. Yet, all the reviews that I read say that he is way beyond his years as an expert on really rethinking work and how we do work, retention, talent management, and life purpose, all bundled up in somebody that is less than 100 years of age. So everybody, could you welcome Eric Tremonde to the show? Welcome, Eric. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. I appreciate it. Okay. And Eric, I appreciate you making time to kind of hang out with us and really share with the listeners sort of your insights. You know, even a, a lot of, sometimes people pick on other individuals, you know, at a young age that you couldn't have all this wisdom. I used to hate that when I was younger. Uh, but really what happens is you bring a fresh, uh, you know, perspective to things. So Eric, you know, for the audience here, what just a little bit of your background, you know, who is Eric and a bit of your journey to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, we'll just, we'll just get this out of the way right away. Uh, since we've alluded to it a couple times, I just, just had my quarter life crisis. Uh, that means I just turned 25 and I'm oh, really my struggling with that. So, you know, uh, not able to buy not. the Corvette or the convertible or anything yet, like the midlife crisis. Uh, I don't have I don't have the cash for that yet. I'm just dealing with right. millennial problems that we all allude to uh, as well. Um, but, you know, that aside, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I, I've really got this, this, this passion for, for people and work. I mean, work is a thing that we do more than anything else in the day, and I firmly believe that we should enjoy it. No, it's not about having fun and goofing off and everything else. It's more about having the ability to just be. Uh, we, we talk about workplace culture. We talk about success. We talk about leadership. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, that's where the buck stops a lot of the time is we just talk about it. And so uh, uh, there, there are three different ways that I get that I get my message and my best practices out. Number one of them is, is through the book. And so I wrote a book that came out earlier this year called Rethink Work. Uh, really happy to get that on the Amazon best-selling list. It's an Indigo in chapters now uh, for, for anyone if they're interested in picking that up. Uh, the second uh, medium, I suppose, is, is through speaking. So I'm very pleased and honored to be signed by the National Speakers Bureau in Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, I'll be going down to New Orleans uh, this weekend, and that sort of kicks off the fall tour. Um, you know, speaking about 30, 40 uh, events a year. Uh, and then the third one, uh, is through now innovations, and, and we believe that there's a lot of rhetoric around the future of work now. Um, and so, what we what we really need to be talking about is the now of work. And so, now innovations is an acronym for the now of work, which is a combination uh, of the future of work, artificial intelligence, machine learning, tech integration, and arguably dependency, uh, and pair that or couple that with traditional relationship building, traditional communication and a traditional attitude of sort of get things done. Now, if we can pair these all together, that sort of puts me in a spot where I can influence and shape this conversation 
around the now of work so that ultimately we can remove that negative connotation associated with work and that we can, mm-hmm. again, do enjoy that thing we do more than anything else in the day, which, which is work. Absolutely. I mean, my own story, Eric, is that I grew up in a dairy farm and was the third generation firstborn male. And of course, a lot of pressure to stay there, but now been in the same space as you for 30 years. And it was the best decision I ever made. Now, right. before we get into the, the core of your work, I want to get into the core of, of Eric. So, you know, at a young age, you, you've gone and you've stepped up and you've moved into this space to really help influence the world, but you, you went on to your own journey. And I think what's valuable for listeners is what did you go through to come to this conclusion? So, I mean, mm-hmm. you were going to the University of Calgary and really were not connected to grade suffered as many of us do when we go back to university or go to university. And then you took a year off and I think you went down to Australia, correct? That's right. Yeah. So tell us about that decision-making process. What was going on where it wasn't fulfilling? And then you took this time off. And what did you discover in that journey before you came back? Sure. Yeah, I mean, similar to, I would say there's a similarity or comparison to the dairy farm. I come from small town, British Columbia. I mean, I know we're talking about the valley here and a lot of, a lot of the listeners being from, from the valley. I come from small town, Cranbrook, British Columbia. And going to the University of Calgary, I'm not sure if culture shock is, is the right term, but you know there was a significant adjustment that, that I had to make. And there was a big learning curve uh, about myself and the environment around me too. Uh, what I thought to be successful, I think, as you know, loosely put, uh, is that I had to get the good grades to then get the white-collar Deloitte, PwC, KPMG, Ernst & Young, McKinsey, Bain consulting job that I thought would then make me successful, that I could be happy, drive a big car, live in a big house and, you know, eventually fly to work in a helicopter. That, that, that was what success had meant. Hel- helicopter being the most important, Eric. Well, I, I didn't want to stress it. I'm <laughs> glad you did. It certainly is the most important. Um, but, but then I started to realize that uh, who, I, who I was becoming didn't actually fit the mold of what I thought was going to be successful. And, and there was... So, okay, just stop you there. One of the things, and sorry, I'm not trying to be interruptive, Eric, because what happens, guests leave gems, and sometimes they leave on the side of the road. And so what, what were you becoming that you were not aligned with? What was happening? Well, well again, you know, I, I think society, generally speaking, puts, puts pressure on, on students or just people to think that success looks and feels a certain way, that the most accumulated wealth, the best title, uh, the biggest house uh, th- then equals the most successful individuals. I don't think we sort mm-hmm. of crack that from being the standard that we have to meet. Uh, I realized that, you know, maybe that maybe I can get there one day, but that's not so much the, the priority anymore. What I started to realize in, in university is that dealing with and conversing with people, solving problems, building strategy, and just uh, ultimately connecting uh, with, a, with a large group of people was, was where I wanted to go. Now, what that looked like, or even if it was a viable career option, I, I had no idea. And so I was kind of, I think, safe to say lost for, for quite a while, which then made me realize, I think I need to step back from this academic journey and recalibrate and sort of realign what I need to be doing on a personal level, not necessarily on an academic level, to be able to get to where I want to go. And so 
that led to a trip, as you mentioned, to, to Australia. And, and what I realized in, in Australia is, is two things. Uh, number one, one of the quotes that I was reading when I was there was an Eleanor Roosevelt quote that said, uh, small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, and great minds discuss ideas. And, and what I realized about traveling is that you don't have any people or events in common with the people that you meet in the hostel, right? You're mm-hmm. brand new. And what you're forced to do immediately is you're forced to talk ideas. You know, what do you want to do tonight? Let's create, let's build. How do we get to the next place? Saving as much money as possible and still having as much fun as possible. And I think in a way that whole travel experience on a budget especially is quite entrepreneurial in that it's a lot of innovative thinking. It's a lot of problem solving. It's a lot of collaboration. And I, and I loved it. But then I started to realize that the application of this thinking uh, can be brought back into the academic realm as well. And so I actually ended up cutting my trip early to get back to school, knowing that that's where I had to be to get to where I wanted to go. But when I got back to school, it's not that the academics weren't a focus, it's that everything else was. And when that actually became a highlight or the focal point, uh, you know, oddly enough, my grades ended up getting much better as well. Uh, and so I became the vice president of one of the business clubs. I joined a case competition. I ended up becoming the vice president of the University of Calgary Student Union. I had an $18 million budget uh, for 25,000 students. And then uh, I think it was a year and a half, two and a half years after dropping out, so to speak, or just taking a leave of absence, I ended up becoming uh, one of the class ambassadors for the graduating class uh, of 2014. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And, and that had nothing to do with academic standing. It had to do with a commitment and contribution to the graduating class and to the overall university experience. And so really what that taught me is that if we can sort of double down on those strengths, that the world around us gets a lot easier. And that whole philosophy of really doing and capitalizing on what you're good at uh, was then uh, brought into the working entrepreneurial world as well. And I ended up outsourcing a lot of the things that I should probably have been able to do myself via the business training that I had. So when it comes to accounting, bookkeeping, anything in the finance side of things, anything in the marketing side of things, uh, I got a lot of help doing that. And I was able to sort of help build the company, start the speaking career and the writing career just based on the connections and the mm-hmm. networks that I developed, knowing that that's where I wanted to spend my time that's where the skills were more developed and that's where sort of less stress and resistance presented itself. Well, let's reframe this for the listeners. When we think about it, Eric, say you came back, went back to school and said, well, I did everything else. What does everything else mean to the, to the average listener if there is such a thing, but to the listeners out there, what, what does everything else mean? For me, it came down to the extracurricular activities, the informal education, the ability to connect and learn, from people rather than than just exclusively books. I mean, now look, I'm not suggesting that the academic experience is any less valuable than anyone else would put on it. I just knew that the way that I was going to learn was far more experiential than the academic traditional side of things. And so the focus then was how do I get put into not the case study that the textbook says, but a real life problem that we can help solve. And I just found that my learning even though the problem might have been the exact same thing, was catalyzed through that hands-on approach rather than through a textbook approach. And I think each of those club and sort of personal experiences uh, Uh helped with that development process. And what you're saying is, is that as a result of that engagement, your own personal engagement in this, it actually helped you, assisted you to actually do even more or better, if you may, 
in your own studies? Yeah, definitely. Because again, what, what was happening is I was getting a, a lot of, I would say, stress and anxiety from the pressure of the academic situation. And so when I took some of that stress and pressure off of the importance of just the academics on its, on its own, I was able to then uh, be able to, to apply some of those real-life experiences to the problems that were presented in the textbook mm-hmm. and then be able to get to the conclusion um, faster, I think, and, and, and with a higher degree of accuracy. Well, thank you, Eric. One of the things that happens, Eric, and you know, you've been through it just recently, but a lot of us or a lot of individuals out there would have a significant amount of family pressure not mm. to go to Australia for a year, not to take a year off, because you know what? You might never come back to university, Eric, uh, which is so be it. So how did you deal with uh, sort of the family pressure? Or maybe there wasn't any. Maybe they encouraged you. How did you um, um, go sort through that? I got lucky, I think, is the best way to put it. Um, I've got a tremendous relationship with both of my parents. And I think, you know, one of the, the themes that I've seen from my you know early education and even just being the son the son of my parents to the to post secondary education and even into the working world one of the biggest things that i think is an element of success on a personal level is, is a high degree of trust and i think those organizations that haven't optimized their culture those families who don't have as strong a tie as they could uh, is really rooted in a lack of that trust and so when I told my parents that this is something that I needed to do, um, you know, they, they, they made sure that they asked me, okay, are you, are you sure? Have you thought this through? What are the things that you need to consider? And they didn't like challenge me so much as they just made sure and reassure, made me reassure mm-hmm. the whole fact that this is the right decision that I needed to make. And when I told them it wasn't for the reasons why I thought it was, uh, you know, they didn't have any resistance in, in, in suggesting that I shouldn't, shouldn't go through that process to Australia. I um, I wasn't really planning this at all, Eric, and that's, of course, why I love organic interviews. But what would you say, you, you have a platform here, what would you say to uh, parents that are listening that have, um, you know, kids where, as you know, my wife works at Trinity and you know, works in the academic coaching department, and a lot of times she is dealing with kids that have been, and I say kids because uh, they're a little younger than I am, is they're being forced down a pathway that parents are sort of being rigid in their expectation, rigid in their direction of, you know, really young adults who are 19 to 25 years of age. What, are you, what would you say to them about letting go, about uh, trusting this process? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you say that. I was just having a conversation about this exact question earlier today, and I, I think the answer is for the the kids, so to speak, to to prove the model. I think we always need to to prove the model, prove happiness, and prove financial success. And when we're starting out with any entrepreneurial entrepreneurial endeavor, it's very difficult to become profitable right away, to make sure that we don't fail, and to everything else. But at the same time, there's so much to be said for being happy. Uh, and then making sure that we can make happiness work on a financial on a financial level, and, and so if we can prove that model to our parents and make sure that we can show them that that we're going to be happy along the way. Look, I think it's safe to say that any parent wants nothing but their kid to be happy and their kid to be financially stable throughout their entire lives. If that means 
they need to go down a different path. And, you know, the, the kid or the student can prove to, to their parents that this is going to be something that, that'll work. Uh, I, I don't think there will be all that much pushback. I mean, sure, traditionally we've seen a doctor or lawyer or engineer or consultant or teacher or, you know, anything in that whole space be sort of table stakes of what success means. But we're living in an era now, we're living in a time now where even 90% of the information on the internet today it was put there in the past two years. Just last year alone, a uh, zettabyte uh, uh, of information was transferred over the web, which is the equivalent of 250 billion DVDs. I mean, an iPhone 5 has 250,000 times the amount of space that the computers on the space shuttle in 1969 had. The, the reality of the situation is, is that the world is changing faster than we've ever seen it before, and we're still at the infancy of Internet and the capabilities of what it's going to be able to do in the next five to ten years. And because of this, we have to be aware that change is the only constant that we're going to see, and the faster that we adapt to this change and the, that we can really move with the times, the more successful we're going to be. Because if you look at traditional careers, in accounting, in insurance, in even medicine and finance. Mm -hmm. Truthfully, the jobs that were supposed to be the most secure over the past 10, 20, 50, even uh, 75 years are the ones that are at the highest risk right now. And we think that technology is killing jobs. The reality of it is it is killing jobs to create room and space for new ones. And so what would have been a viable, arguably successful career in the past might actually be a dangerous recommendation now. And the problem is, it's not that parents don't think that it's going to work, it's that we actually don't know or we haven't proven it to be successful, right? It's that mm -hmm. there's a, a lack of education, I think, that's happening uh, and reverse or cross-mentorship that's happening between what happened in the past and what's happening now. And I think truly that students or kids or anyone of that younger generation, for lack of a better term, can really educate uh, parents on the speed that the world is, is moving to and, and how to capitalize on that. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric, for that. And uh, my encouragement to those that are listening is that, you know, they used to have this thing called helicopter parents. Now they're talking about lawnmower parents, which are like sort of scripting your day. And, you know, talk about destroying a person's um, freedom to sort of be themselves. I, I appreciated what your parents did, Eric, is that their wisdom was is to make sure we ask the right questions, that you've right. been thoughtful, and to add any wisdom that we can. But in the end, that person has to live their own life as part of it. You know, so there's an interesting transition because I would just have, was interviewing another guest recently, Eric, and he suggested that in the future, there won't be any mortgage brokers or realtors. There'll be Uberized, if I can create that word, of sure. that process. I put in, here's my, just like Airbnb or house, I'm going to Airbnb it. I'm going to mortgage it. I'm going to put it in and it's just going to come up. Here's your options. Here are the six providers that we're going to give that to you. So with that being said, there's really two themes that I like to investigate with you, Eric, on your expertise. You've written the book, you know, Rethink Work. One of the things you keep talking about was joy or happiness in work. So, okay, you go to Calgary, you've, you're the vice president, you have all these things. Okay, now you're doing the speaking, now you're writing books. Like, where did that come from? Like, where, where was this motivation to really be a voice in this space? Uh, it came out of necessity, really. And I think that most entrepreneurial endeavors come from necessity. What, what is it? What's, this, what's the line? Innovation. Um, 
thrives in times of necessity. I mean, if we have to create something because there's no other option, very rarely do we fail in doing that. Uh, you know, it's fight or flight at that point. And so, you know, I'll be fully transparent. When you start a cultural, com- or when you start like a culture consultancy, focusing in the HR attraction and retention space, and you're 22 years old, you don't get many people that take you seriously. You know, you haven't been. Really? You have, uh, why, yeah, why would odd, that right? be? Odd, right? <laughs> but, you know, of course. So it, it came down to, okay, well, how do we make this work? And, and you know, I, I'm not, I'm not taking all the credit. I've had co-founders and business partners along the way that have been in, incredibly helpful. I mean, uh, Emerson Chorba, uh, you know, Ashley Anderson, uh, Simon Howard. Now I've got Rocky Ozaki who, who's been helping me. And each person has been really instrumental uh, in, in playing their, their roles. Uh, sometimes lead and sometimes support in each of the different cases. But, you know, ultimately what it came down to is to be taken seriously and to be credible and to be validated and to be justified in the work that we're doing, we had to find alternate ways of getting out there. And so, yeah, we had a lot of, of client work and we built the case studies and we did everything that uh, that we needed to do. But at the same time, it, it wasn't enough. And perhaps it's never enough when you're trying to build a company. Mm-hmm. So the, then the, the, uh, the ask was, well, how do we get out there more? How do we reach more people? How do we become more of a figure in this space? And um, it was it was a year and a half ago that I set out to create more blog and written posts. Um, and the goal was to get a million views. And I think as of right now, it's 1.3 or 1.4 million. And that's not to suggest that it happens overnight. That was, you know, about 100 articles that come out on a consistent basis that has targeted to a very specific group. You know, you can't have one shoe that fits all size feet. You can't write a book that's written for the United States and Canada. You have to have a book that's written to a very specific group of people. And when you really look to identify that audience, when you really look to identify that target, you start to speak and understand the language that the people that you're really looking to speak to understand too. Um, mm-hmm. And if you can if you can do that and you can start to be a figure, be a, a person in that space, then all of a sudden you're taken a little bit more seriously and age doesn't matter as much. Right. And so it just it just came down to how do we attack this attraction, retention, workplace culture, happiness, belonging, diversity, inclusion, next generation conversation, basically the future of, of human resources or the now of, of future of, of human resources and people and culture to be able to be a player. I mean, we're coming up against some big, big, big talent, you know, the Gallups, the Aeons, the Deloitte's, the big consultancies. Uh, and we think that, that our process, that our framework works and uh you know thankfully our clients will say the same thing great great well thanks eric so with that with that then when you talk about joy or happiness in work whose responsibility is that is that the employer is that the employee it's a collective effort but the thing is is when we look at joy and happiness in the workplace we often think that it's created somewhere down the line after people have joined the workplace and I think one of the biggest focuses and one of the biggest things that I try and stress is that culture is created before people even enter the office for the first time and I think that when we look at the way that we attract talent and then retain them uh, there's some changes that have to be made I mean if we look at a job description right now a job description isn't really a description of a job at all it's a skills and requirements checklist do you have this experience? Do you have this education? Do you have this understanding? Are you proficient in these skills? Great. You might be a good fit for us. Well, then, of course, actually, there's those table stakes sort of behaviors. Are you a good communicator? Are you a team player? Are you motivated and driven? All of these mm-hmm. sort of things. 
And I think what we need to be actually doing is saying, okay, look, what does that experience look like within this workplace? Who are the people that you're going to be working with? How many days overtime are you expected to work? How often are you going to get to travel? What do you do on the weekends? What do you do after work? What's your family situation? Because the thing is now, as I mentioned before, is that work is bigger than just this nine to five experience that we've been traditionally so used to. It is, it is all encompassing. I'm sure you can agree, especially with, with your company, that you can wake up at 5.30 in the morning and have work to do until you go to sleep at night. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, you can keep going. I mean, 2.30 then. That's right. That's right. Well, that's just it, right? And and, and in the past, before we had accessibility to the smartphones in our hand or the laptops and, you know, wireless internet, which, you know, (laughs) let's get serious, wasn't all that long ago, work had a totally different lens. And I don't think we've adjusted to the degree that we need to yet. And so if we can tell the right story to attract not just talent with the right skills, but the right talent with the right skills and other right fit, then I think we can start to create a more aligned organization that really brings people who share a similar value set together. They can to work towards the same goal as individuals, as teams, and as an organization as a whole. Great. So when we, so when we think about you know, developing this culture, I know one of the chapters in your book is this fictitious millennial, right? So there's individuals who make it, that's their expertise, that's what they say, and then there's this space. Uh, you are one of them, if you were to use that category. My kids are as well. So uh, what do you mean by that, the fictitious millennial? Well, okay, let me, let me put it this way. As, as I mentioned before, there, there's, there's a theory that's called the knowledge doubling curve. And the knowledge doubling curve basically states that the amount of information humans have access to is doubling at a halved rate. I'll Mm -hmm. unpack it just a little bit further. From 1800 to 1900, the amount of we as people had access to doubled every 100 years, okay? So, and after 1900, it doubled at a half rate. So from 1900 to 1950, the amount of information that we as people knew, not as individuals, it doesn't mean we're twice as smart as people, as as individual people, but just as a society, Mm -hmm. knew doubled. From 1950 to 75, it doubled again. From 75 to 88, it doubled again. From 88 to 93, it doubled again, Uh, and and so on and so forth. To the point now where IBM actually said last year that the amount of information that we have access to doubles every 13 months. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is incredible. Everything that we as people know doubles that fast. Now, Now, what I think is interesting about that is that when we look at this whole generational conversation, we look at the different generations, we could look at, you know, traditionalists being, um, let's just say boomers being uh, 50 to 65, 65 to 80 is X, uh, 80 to 95 is Gen Y or millennial, 95 to 2000 is, is Gen Z, and then Omega or whatever else is coming out after, after that. Um, and, and I think the problem with this is it doesn't take into consideration how fast the world around us is changing. So, so my theory then, that I'm trying to really work on is that if that's the case, if knowledge is doubling at an exponential rate, the time span a generation occupies, which used to be a fixed 15 years, should actually shrink at the same rate because the world is changing so fast around these people, us as a collective, which would then suggest that a millennial might actually only be a 13 or 18 month time span, right? Because here's the thing, Ken, in, in Canada, we're looking at, if we're using the years 1980 to 1995, 7.5 million people, 21% of the Canadian population are, are millennial. Uh, and what happens when we try and group or generalize 7.5 million people that have nothing but age in common 
is that we get it wrong. We get it really wrong. I mean, yes, we might be right in, in many cases, but the reality is, is that we're going to be quite wrong as well. And so if we can then start to talk about who these people are, not just how old they are, it's going to be far more, we're going to be far more accurate in actually understanding what the values, wants, needs, and expectations of them can be. So who are these people and, and can we even generalize? Well, these people are you and I. These people are your, your mother and my younger cousin. I mean, these people are people that have everything and nothing in common depending on what their value sets are. And so I think it's so funny when, when organizations are trying to attract or appeal to millennials or we look at 10 ways to attract or 10 ways to communicate with millennials. I mean, if you look at any of these lists, you're going to think, hey, you know what? I like these too. <laughs> and, and I think it's really funny too because even a couple of weeks ago I saw – a new generation be coined that was called Xennial that was halfway between Gen X and, and millennial for those people who felt like left out or something like that. And, and these people were sort of quite tech savvy and they kind of liked remote and flexible work environments. And it was just so bizarre to read this stuff and think like, so wait, you're telling me these things are only limited to people born between 1975 and 1985. You know, the truth is, is it's not, not accurate. I mean, if we talk about, who people are and not what they are. We're going to be far more accurate in understanding what we can get out of these people, how we can align them with the mission, vision, values of our organization and the people within our organization as well. Well, thank you, Eric. If, if we're thinking about now we're going to communicate to individuals out there who in some way or another are influencing hiring or have a company or maybe they're in a company and they have decisions to make around the culture of the organization. What's your coaching to the listeners about, okay, we're trying to create and rethink work. What is it that we need to do differently or what is it that we need to do, period? Well, obviously the answer is give me a call. Uh, but if that's not the first thing. Uh, <laughs> well done. Good segue, Eric. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, the, the, the term that I've started to, to figure out, and this is fairly recent, it took a while to, to articulate, but, but the way that I see it, is an optimized culture is, is one where the stated and the realized experiences are the same. Now, I'll unpackage that a little bit. The stated experiences, of course, is going to be your mission, vision, values. It's going to be the mantra that you metaphorically or literally have in your boardroom. It's going to be, you know, those things that are really driving your organization from the documents and the marketing documents that you put out. Uh, the realized experience is what happens when you ask any average employee in your organization what it's like to work there. And I think that an optimized culture is one where those two statements are, are exactly the same. If we want to actually look to close that gap and make sure that we have an optimized culture and we actually do have people that are aligned, what I think we really need to be doing is understanding, first of all, why is that stated experience what it is? Where did that come from? Was it, did it come from just the leadership team on a three-day retreat somewhere in Whistler? Or did it come from a group effort where we understood who our people are what they value, and how we can collectively drive towards a single mission or goal. Uh, and the second, then, is to take that realized experience and understand through survey, through quantitative and qualitative analysis, which sounds a lot more complicated than it is, is to understand what people love about working there, what the real dynamics, intricacies, and differentiators are of that experience. And then the third is to close the gap between the two. So maybe the stated experience might actually need a revision once we understand what people really love about working there, about why mm -hmm. people do what they do, about how they do what they do, about who they do what they do with, and how that gap is actually closed. If then we can uh, update that statement 
and then have harmony between the stated and the realized experiences, then I think we can have an optimized culture. And I think the one thing I'll say to add on to that is that a universal best culture doesn't exist. You know, I was looking at the Fortune 100 top places to work in, in the United States. And um, number one uh, was Google. And number four was Wegmans, so a, a food, a grocery market. And, and so, you know, the thing is, is not many people from Wegmans would want to work at Google and not many people at Google would want to work at, at Wegmans. The point mm-hmm. then there is that a universal best culture doesn't exist. And so to compare whatever your company is really to anybody else, if you're a credit union comparing to a big bank, don't do that. If you're a small consul- consulting company comparing yourself to a big consulting company, don't do that. If you're a small accounting firm comparing yourself to a big accounting firm, don't do that. Because the reality of the situation is, is that whoever's working in your organization is there for the experience that they signed up for, right? And if we can close the gap between the stated and the realized experience at any one of our organizations, regardless of the size, regardless of the profit status, regardless of the industry, then one organization at a time, can we rethink work and can we remove the negative connotation associated with it? Mm. Well, agree, agree, agree. Uh, you know, the, when you think about it for yourself as an entrepreneur or myself as an entrepreneur, really you are establishing what are the value sets of that organization that really reflect the heart of Eric or right. Ken or whoever it is at that point. And I'm not trying to be Eric's business and Eric's not trying to be mine and that's, that's right. okay. And a lot of times when uh, listeners or other individuals look at other experts, they go and they're trying to be somebody else. And I think that's what you found too in your voice or when I got into speaking is that your voice is Eric's voice. It's not. That's right. Uh, somebody else that's not Anthony Robbins or somebody else that's out there. Well, I was just going to say, I make a conscious effort of not listening to those high-profile, wildly successful speakers, not because I don't think they have great things to say, but because I'm so conscious of maintaining the uniqueness of my voice that uh, I stay clear from that stuff. I don't listen to the Gary Vaynerchucks or to you know the Tony Robbins or any of those guys. What I do instead is listen to comedians. <laughs> because I think comedians have such a spectacular delivery of story um, that we can uh, all learn from that. And since, and since we're in such a wildly different place, there's not. Heaven forbid there. we would have a sense of humor at work, right, Eric? That's right. That's right. You know. And, and the final thing I'll say when you talk about uh, you know uniqueness and and you not wanting to be uh, like or compete against my company or or me against you or accounting firm against accounting firm. One of the things that I would suggest when you're looking at building this mission, vision, value statement, if you haven't already, or if you have any know or feel that it needs revision, one of the things that I would do is change the second V out. And so it's not your mission, vision, value statement anymore. It's your mission, vision, people statement, your MVP statement. And the reason that's important is because the values of people are far more understandable and relatable than the values of an organization. So if I can say that, Ken demonstrates a high level of integrity and respect by doing this, that, and the other thing. I can say, oh, you know what? Okay, I, I see how he does that. I see that I like that. I see that I want to be a part of that. Whereas if you said TELUS or, you know, some telecom or whatever, you know, not to suggest any that that, that is their value, but to suggest that TELUS values respect and integrity. It's like, okay, well, great, but I don't know how I actually fit in with that or what that looks like or, you know, how that really applies to me. And so I think that's a good way of sort of differentiating culture within your organizations to start with the people and understand how they're different and then how you can capitalize and grow on that. Mm, Absolutely. So if you were to leave some final words about rethinking work, as well as 
you know, even those individuals, I mean, my work is around helping people to um, get clear about their purpose, but same thing for you is if you were to sort of encourage individuals first around getting connected to their purpose and joy, and number two is some final words to those people who influence workplaces, what would those comments yeah. be? If you're an individual looking for that next best fit, um, stop sending in a resume. <laughs> uh, what I would do is find out who the people are that you want to be working with, what space you want to be working in, and really what you find to be most natural for you. Uh, whatever the most natural ability that you've got, the most natural skill set that you've got, uh, is convertible to something that can be uh, paid for, and I would say quite well. To. Then if you can find the people and the things, the, the people that you want to work with and the style of work that you want to do, then finding that organization and presenting your value to them will be far easier because they know that you've done the research. Now, does this take a little bit more time? Uh, yes, but at the same time, in this mm -hmm. day and age, so does sending out 90 resumes with 90 different cover letters blindly trying to apply to a job that we don't know if we'll like in the first place. Uh, I would say is just put a little bit more front-end effort into this search and look more for people than just skills. I mean, for example, uh, I looked on LinkedIn uh, just, just I mean, yesterday, uh, and I looked at Toronto, and I searched Toronto, and then I searched account manager, and I came up with 149,900 uh, different jobs of, of account managers. And so if you're an account manager, for example, uh, clearly you've got a desirable skill set, but if you were to apply for these organizations, there are going to be so many that are such a great fit and so many that really aren't, and you're not going to be able to tell the difference between a good fit and not when you look at the job description. You will, though, when you start talking to the people and understanding what their life is like, both in and outside of work, uh, how they're doing their work, and, and why they're doing it. So that, 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 I think, is really important. Well, just to support that, Eric always said, hey, listen, interview the company as much as them interviewing you. So you really have to do your research. It's easier said than done, but at the same time, taking that effort and really going in to get out of your comfort zone is really important. Uh, if, if you're a company that's looking for that next best fit, tell a better story. I mean, uh, get somebody who's in that position already or someone who, who you think would be a good fit for that position and, and put a little video together. And I'm not talking about spending 30, 40, 50 grand or anything like that. I'm talking about the back of an iPhone if you really want to and get some sort of feeling and emotion and context behind the position, behind the people. Don't just talk about the perks. I think perks attract talent. They don't keep them there. And so if you're talking mm -hmm. about the, the ping pong table and the beer keg, that's all well and good, but you might, get, you, might get, you might find that there's some introverted person that has no interest in that stuff that would be an incredible fit to your company that you've totally missed the mark on. And so again, the more you can bring your people to the forefront, tell a context-rich story about the experience at work, then I think you can start to bring on the right person to be proactive in this recruiting process and not reactive in solving problems once they've arisen. Thank you. And then the, other, the last question was around just I'm responsible for work culture. What do you, what do you suggest? How do I start? Yeah, start, start, start talking to your people uh, after you talk to me. Start talking to your people and, um, and, and really start to understand where the strengths are that you can really leverage when you're looking to attract people and then keep them on, where the weaknesses are, where the gaps are that you can close, uh, and, then, uh, and then acting on it. I mean, it's one thing to start a conversation. It's another to, to, to really act on it and put a plan in place. I think one of the biggest problems with an engagement survey is that it's done on an annual basis. You see where the, where the, where the strengths and the opportunities are, and then it's left to collect dust for the next 11 and a half months. 
uh, there's very little action. I think to build trust with employees, you have to, uh, you know, ask them these questions for the right reasons and then follow up or follow through on that ask by delivering what some of those results are going to be and really uh, introducing some of the changes that, that I think need to be made. And, and you'll find, too, that when we start to ask employees these questions, it's not uh, – it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. It's not big flips of an organization, it's small pivots and tweaks. So if you're, if you're scared uh, about what the results are, uh, there's even more reason to do it. <laughs> and if you're excited about what the results are, you're probably already doing it. Um, and so again, you know, we'll find that if companies are doing this for the first time, they might see a small voluntary turnover. Keep in mind this is a good thing because that, that tension that you're probably feeling in your workforce that you can't quite put your thumb on, will emerge, the, the cracks will expose themselves, and, and then they'll probably take care of themselves when you act on them too. And so again, these are all positive, necessary changes that aren't revolutionary, they're evolutionary, they aren't substantial, they're, they're fairly minuscule, that just involve a little bit of tweak and pivot along the way. Thanks, Eric, I appreciate that. Now, Eric, if, they, if people want to find out more about you or get in contact with you, what are the different websites and contact points for you? Yeah, I mean, Ken, I'm not sure where, where this will live, but uh, I'll make sure that in the, in the comments or just in the description below we'll, we'll have them. I mean, LinkedIn is my primary platform uh, just for on, on the social side of things. Um, just, of course, first and last name. Um, personal websites, just firstlastname.com. Uh, and then the company site is, is nowofwork.xyz. We're trying to be a little bit forward-thinking in that. Uh, and actually, just today, well, just recently, we, we launched our Future Proof Summit. So we, we, we're trying to decentralize best practices in human resources. And so we got companies like Netflix, Microsoft, Unilever, Procter Gamble, uh, Samsung, um, 30 great companies on board that, that you can attend for free. We're not asking anything uh, from you for it. Uh, we just wanted to start this process by giving our clients and the people in our network uh, some really big value um, and, then, and then work from there. The initial airing of this show will be for your summit. So dates on the summit and where they could register? October 16th to 20th. Uh, you can go nowofwork.xyz. Summit tab is on the top right and uh, sign up there. No credit card, no fee, no anything. Uh, this, is, this is truly a free conference we want you to enjoy. Well, thank you, Eric. And I encourage everybody that's listening that they would participate in Eric's uh, summit and learn from some of the best in the industry, but also, you know, some of the innovation that's occurring uh, out there. Thanks, Eric, for being with us. Great. Thanks so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. When we think about innovation and what Eric's been sharing with us is age doesn't matter. Really, wisdom does. And so I thank Eric for spending the time with us. So my encouragement is, is that if you're not in love with your job, if you're not having that joy, then just take a step back and uh, take ownership of that. If you have a work culture and it's really not aligned to what you're saying, then take stock of that as well. As always, we say, listen, if you like what we're doing, then we encourage you to share and pass it on and let others know about the work here. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.